Hello, I'm Jeremy Maggs and a very warm welcome to episode two of No Ordinary Wednesday. It's an in-depth look at the events and the trends moving markets, shaping the economy and changing the game. Today I'm chatting to Tersha Jacobs, Treasury economist at Investec and labour law expert Andrew Levy about the thorny issue of the public sector wage bill. The subject of a bitter deadlock between government and unions that could not only impact services but potentially imperil the long-term viability of the country's entire economy. We'll also be digging deep into the latest GDP numbers at a time when unemployment rates are at their highest on record. Investec Chief Economist Annabelle Bishop weighs in on whether the latest data has changed her outlook. And then it's time to tackle today's burning question. This is it. Why should inflation matter to the equity markets? I'll be putting that to one of the foremost authorities on the subject, Itumaleng Marafi, who is head of sales for lending at Investec for Business. But first, Andrew Levy, Labour Law Specialist from Andrew Levy and Associates, as we discuss the public sector wage bill. Andrew, how entrenched is this impasse? Oh, Jeremy, that's a difficult one to begin with. I mean, on the face of it, it is entrenched. But in point of fact, um, a lot of this is rhetoric. A lot of it is possibly rhetoric which is uncalled for. And ultimately, one of the parties is going to have to move. So to that extent, it will end. The real question is, is it going to take industrial action? And if it does, will the industrial action be sustained for any length of time? And equally, um, is the government committed to its position? So those are really the key questions that we need to uh, examine. Let me try and get my head around the scale of this problem, Andrew Levy. Many years of increases, check you would agree, they've outstripped the country's GDP growth. Something in the region of 50% of the national budget goes towards servicing this bill. I mean, it was inevitable, wasn't it, that government was going to say, no, enough is enough. Well, many people are surprised that it's taken so long. It's absolutely unsustainable. And in point of fact, the public sector employees are without any question the best paid in the country. They would have you believe that they are all poorly paid and exploited. Nothing could be further from the truth. And in point of fact, if you compare them to the private sector, not only does the remuneration outstrip, but in fact, the security of employment is quite something. And as far as I know, for example, they all drew full salaries during the COVID uh, shut down. So they really were well off. Now, having said all that, uh, yes, indeed, from 2009 onwards, if you want to put a point on it, um, where we did have 2009, 2011 strikes in the public sector, um, there were double digit settlements in the face of those strikes. Now, that in fact, had the effect of destabilizing the whole structure of wage differentials across the economy, and we have only just in the last few years managed to re-establish the fact that in terms of the amount of the increase, the public sector should really be at the bottom of the wage distribution. But in fact, it's at the top. So whilst the uh, quantum of the increases has come down, um, the amount is still high. 
But if you then look at the impact of COVID, um, well, the private sector has come down even more. And the fact of the matter is that the government cannot and should not borrow money it doesn't have to go into current expenditure in wages. It cannot be sustained. All right, Andrew Levy, I want to come back and ask you in just a moment about the union perspective. But Tersha Jacobs, let me bring you into the conversation now. Why is this such a crucial issue for government finances and more broadly the economy? Yes, Jeremy. So I think the, the key dynamic here is that our government has actually run out of fiscal space. It basically means that if we continue to increase spending um, at a time when your revenue growth is well below what it was pre-COVID, it basically means that you continue to borrow more money, right? And government is not in a position now to hike taxes because at the moment, you know, or even when you look back over the past three years, the tax increases that we received did not lead to higher revenue receipts. So basically, it's either we contain spending or the budget deficit will continue to grow. And this is all playing out in the context of growth that is not robust at the moment. So we are literally staring into the eye of the abyss as far as this is concerned. We are close, but there are issues that we can address. And one of them is basically to contain spending. And the public sector wage bill is key in it. Because as Andrew pointed out, your, your public sector wage bill takes up nearly 45% of revenue receipts, right? And when you look at the composition of expenditure over the past decade, as a government increased the, the salary bill, where did they save money? It was basically in the capital budget. So that has also impacted our potential GDP. So Andrew Levy, where do the unions fit into this? What are they going to say? What are they saying, I guess I should ask you, when they are told to assist with that containment that uh, Tersha speaks about? You know, Jeremy, um, again, it's a difficult one because I certainly don't have a mandate to speak for the unions and they would certainly not agree with anything that I say. But I, I think one must say it boldly, um, and that is that the unions, uh, in terms of what I've seen, have failed completely uh, to show any recognition of the economic dire straits that we're in, or what COVID has done to the economy. Because if you look at the pattern of their wage increases now, their demands, they have not changed one iota. And they are still demanding these outrageous increases with all of the frills that go with it. So frequently, the, uh, the bill adds up to 80 to 100%. Um, and there's no indication that there is a recognition of the constrained ability for employers, let alone government, to pay. And this is coupled with the usual sort of bellicose noises we have about the mother of all strikes and there'll be blood in the streets and this, that and the other, um, as opposed to any recognition that we are in a national crisis. So I think that, uh, you know, with respect to the unions, there is a total lack of recognition of reality. Now, the one thing I find a little bit difficult to penetrate um, is, is this a facade? Is this their negotiating strategy? Because they believe that it's a good negotiating ploy to open it 100% so you've got a long, long way to move. 
Well, in reality, my view is that it's it, it, it's a fallacy uh, and it's particularly uh, ill-advised because you know you're going to end up settling at 4 or 5% uh, and, and that means that you will make more moves and greater moves and that doesn't help you in negotiations. But they will be saying, uh, of course, that government um, can pay, that government should take money away from the fat cats, from the people at the top and give it to them, not admitting that they are reasonably plump when it comes to cattishness. And the other point that one may need to make is that if my explanation isn't so, then it may well be that we are still looking at the old entrenched uh, socialist Marxist Leninist view, which says we're all capitalist swine, don't believe a word that we say, we're lying, the money is there, uh, and we've just got to get our hands on it. But either way, it is not going to happen. So the question is, how long will the strike be if there is a strike? All right, Tersha, back to you. So against that backdrop of the rhetoric that Andrew Levy talks about, the finance minister has said if the situation perpetuates, it could have an impact on the sovereign debt crisis. Am I correct in saying that the stakes are that high? Or is, is he overplaying the rhetoric side of the card as well? No, because, you know, if, this, if the current trajectory continues, the sovereign debt dynamics will deteriorate. You know, where we're standing now, the debt to GDP trajectory is expected to rise to nearly 90% over the next two to three years. And that basically comes from two years ago, our debt was 20% less. So South Africa's debt has been growing at the fastest pace. Then added to this is, you know, National Treasury has also published research where they said if the trade unions are granted a salary increase of CPI plus one percent that could add roughly 130 billion to the baseline spending over the next three years and that implicitly means either you're going to get an increase in the budget deficit and an even faster increase in the data gdp ratio or which is very likely is that they will reduce spending elsewhere and this becomes increasingly frustrating i imagine for the ratings agencies and fitch in particular well, it's Fitch, it's S&P and Moody's. And at the moment, you know, their rating from Moody's in, is one notch above um, S&P and Fitch with a negative outlook. So they've built certain assumptions into their forecast. Obviously, what is the credibility of a government in repaying debt? So if you don't start um, addressing some of the fiscal metrics, in other words, how much of your spending is allocated towards servicing debt, because the faster that rises, um, the more you have to borrow to actually finance that debt, which means you can end up in um, a debt trap. Mm -hmm. That is basically what they're looking at. And at the moment, when you look at the ratings, the opinion of all the agencies and even investors are that they see it very difficult that government will be able to toe the line in otherwise, in other words, sticking to the forecast that they presented in the February budget. So hence, um, you know, what Andrew is talking about, what kind of salary increase we are going to get there because that will determine that trajectory. Like everything in South Africa, it's not just labor against government, it's part of a bigger political theater, particularly in an election year. And we've We've got to take cognizance of that, haven't we? Jeremy, that is true, but I think it's a little bit more mooted at the moment for the simple reason 
that as you get closer to the bottom line of the bargaining table, the political issues tend to fade away. And if there's going to be a strike, then it's not going to be because of the politics. It'll be because of the numbers. But absolutely, when it's all said and done, um, and indeed, while we were still in the early stages, there, there was a great degree of this politicking, and, and that is part of the threat. But I think we are facing the economic realities right now. Andrew, we also know that the public service minister, Senjan Tunu, and who would want his job, has called for public input on this matter. That's just kicking a very old can down the road, isn't it? Well, it is um, in the sense that, if nothing else, he's doing a, uh, a hand-washing exercise. Uh, so he can turn around and say when he's under pressure, well, I asked you all for your input, and what did you give me? Um, but I think if you look a little more closely, one of the difficulties that we have faced is that public opinion has been uh, very, very quiet in the field of labor relations. So when we have ridiculous wage claims, when we have people getting killed in strikes, when we have property being destroyed, the voice of the public is not being heard. We're beginning to hear the voice of the courts. The voice of the government is also very low volume. So we need that to take place. But it's, it's a little bit too late for the current round. So I think that the, uh, you know, the two trains are heading towards one another. Um, it's a question of who will throw the switch first or who will yell chicken. Andrew, in conclusion, just remind us again where we stand in terms of this standoff timeline. Well, the first thing is um, we're all speculating, will there be a major strike in the public sector? And to stick my neck out, I don't think so. It, there may be a strike, but I think it'll be very sporadic and it won't last long. The areas that may hold out are the areas of major militancy, which includes people like teachers, nurses, some transport workers, um, health and allied workers. But in reality, the level of earnings of many of the PSA employees in the public sector is so high that they live very well, they will have credit card debt, they will have leases on cars, they are not in a position to withstand a lengthy strike. That's the first point. The second point is, to what extent could government pay them even if they wish to. And as I recall, when I looked at the judgment from the Labour Court as to whether or not it was legal contractually for the government to back out of the last uh, tranche of its three-year deal, um, they found that it was on the basis that there is statute, and indeed it's possibly constitutional, that the government cannot borrow money to fund current wages. Now, if that is the case, then there's certainly no chance that the government will move on this. And the other thing I would say, which is interesting and doesn't appear to have been put in the frame that it ought to be in, is the government have offered one and a half percent. But in reality, it's no offer at all. Uh, and it's a very canny move because what they're planning to do and what they've offered to do is to take the one and a half percent notch increase which the civil servants get every year just because they're breathing, put that in a different packet. So we'll give it to you in your base rate as wages, which in fact gets rid of the spurious payment 
and consolidates it in the base rate. So all they're doing is taking money out of one bag and putting it into another, which is a little bit more robust. So it's really no increase at all. And Andrew Levy, very quickly, when then do we expect a Concord ruling? Well, the the unions have uh, remitted the matter to the Concord. Um, Obviously, in cases like this, um, it would be regarded as something that ought to be fast-tracked. But, you know, the judicial process, as we all know, is such a slow one that um, I wouldn't like to put my money on it. But having said that, um, we still have the Labour Appeal Court ruling, and that is good until the Concord says something else. So it's not as if we don't have authority. Tersh, I'm going to give the last word to you. So let's assume that you are on one of those trains that Andrew Levy has just spoken about, uh, and you're sitting next to the finance minister, Tito Mbaweni, who's <laughs> promised to cut the wage bill by 160 billion rand in three years. It's a king's ransom. What would you say to him? Is it achievable? Or would you get off at the next station? Just one dynamic is that that 160 billion reduction, right, it's just a reduction in the baseline going forward. So it basically means a wage freeze, right? So it's not actually that you will now earn 75% of your of your salary before. Yeah. So I guess I will, where I'm sitting from, you know, looking at the macro economy, the government's borrowing costs, the future of South Africa from a debt sustainable point of view, you know, to the extent that will South Africa be able to afford and um, repaying its debt and service its interest costs? I will say to him, I'm backing you up from that perspective. Yes, it's not, you know, from an individual perspective, it is very difficult. But, you know, as Andrew pointed out, the the public sector wage bill has grown dramatically over the past decade. And there's also another issue here. You know, there is actually a premium on the the lower income earners. The higher skilled workers in the public sector hasn't actually received that kind of increase. So you're also losing skills. And then it comes back to the competency and the capability of a public sector. So efficiency of spending is not very high and that again feeds into um, our infrastructure spending drive and how to get the economy off the ground. Both of you have cut through this issue with skill and precision. Tasha Jacobs, Investor, Corporate and Institutional Banking Treasury Economist, Andrew Levy, Labor Law Specialist from Andrew Levy and Associates. To both of you, thank you very much for joining me on No Ordinary Wednesday. In a moment, I'm going to ask Investec Chief Economist Annabel Bishop to delve into the latest GDP numbers, which of course have a direct bearing on the public purse. But before we do that, a quick reminder that a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. To make sure that you get it, subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please rate us. So, Annabel Bishop, we've just heard Tertia and Andrew discussing the impact of the public sector wage bill on the fiscus, our debt and the economy, and whether it can sustain the kind of spending hikes that we've seen in recent years. Now, the latest GDP figures are out and increasing at a yearly rate of 4.6% during the first quarter. I want to start our conversation very briefly with your reading and I suspect that you'll tell me this could be good news, a good trajectory when it comes to future growth. 
Yes, Jeremy, thanks very much. I think that's exactly the point. You know, we are seeing substantially stronger uh, GDP outcome for the first quarter of this year than was anticipated. You know, very widely anticipated, I may add, by the Reserve Bank, by National Treasury, by um, economic consensus in South Africa. The good news is that, you know, having run the figures, it looks like we could see a GDP outcome for this year of about 5%. Now, that's strong growth, but remember, of course, last year we had a contraction in GDP of 7%. So, as a consequence, you know, we are seeing a rebound. Yes, we're not making up all the GDP we lost as a consequence of those very harsh lockdowns last year. But nevertheless, it's it's look it's looking like it's going to come out better than expected. And I think that's the key point here. So the impact then is what, particularly on something like the deficit? So I think, you know, what is really key here is if you roll this forwards and we have a look at National Treasury's growth forecast, we're a bit more optimistic. We see GDP in real terms now. Remember, we for the 5% are talking about also in real terms. We see GDP in real terms likely coming out at about 3% by 2025. At face value, this might be a shock because obviously we're saying 5% growth this year. But of course, it's not 5% growth this year. It would be a contraction this year if we compared it to 2000. 19 and everyone's going to be talking about those base effects but taking them out of the way and looking at economic growth for the next few years next year 2022 and out to 2025 we see economic growth move from about two percent towards three percent by the end of that period in addition starting off at a stronger point now this year 2021 with economic growth of five percent instead of what was even expected to be closer to three percent or maybe even two and a half percent at the start of this year we could actually see an improvement in the government figures for this year you know the debt was expected to come out at 80.3 percent this uh, this fiscal year from um, the 63.3 percent of the year before of course we've closed off the fiscal year in march 2021 but we now think it'll come out at 79.1 percent so just below 80 percent for the fiscal year as opposed to just above 80 percent and of course the important point is that rolling this into next year means that we could see a lower G, uh, debt ratio as well and of course coming out at closer to 80 percent as opposed to 82 percent now these all seem to be very small figures small potatoes as some people say but if you continue this compounding effect if you continue rolling it out to 2025 26 and we don't give away our government finance, fiscal gains, our fiscal consolidation through substantially higher wages to the civil service. In other words, Jeremy, we stick to planned expenditure. And of course, you know the planned expenditure constraints in the budget, which obviously, you know, talk to these points. We could actually eventually see gross debt peaking likely at closer to 84% instead of closer to 90% in 2025-26. It just illustrates to us, doesn't it, Annabelle, the importance of this public sector wage bill issue and what impediment it could be to the upward trajectory. Absolutely. And I think we already saw some recognition from the president towards members of parliament and looking at a 2.8% increase for them. Now, we'd say rationally, that's below inflation. Inflation is expected to come out at 4.5%. It's not much. But really, you know, trying to prevent further credit rating downgrades for South Africa, trying to improve the overall government finance environment so we can reorientate expenditure towards infrastructure projects and away from civil servant salaries and wages, which, as we know, have been the largest component and growth component in the budget over the um, past decade or so compared to the others. If you look at, you know, the size of money spent, 
then this could be a real difference. So I think, you know, the bottom line really comes down to are we going to see government stick to its guns or are we going to see it give in and push through some increases? So we've just got to hold the course as far as that is concerned. Annabel Bishop, I want to look at contributory factors now to this uh, increase in GDP. Mining and quarrying growing by a combined 18.1%. Also a good performance in the finance, real estate and business services sectors. What was driving that momentum? Look, I think particularly in uh, the mining sector, as you know, we've had this absolute boom in commodity prices globally. And that's really elevated the RAND value of production in the mining sector. In other words, it's ramped up the demand. And of course, that in turn has improved this value. So we are finding ourselves in a situation now where there are some naysayers who don't believe the commodity boom can persist. We think high commodity prices certainly will be here to stay this year because we are obviously seeing the global economy gain traction. It hasn't recovered yet. And of course, we're also seeing the United States seeing significant strength in its economy, yes, but of course, uh, fiscal policies coming through which are highly supportive of growth and investment, particularly infrastructure investment. And as you know, that stimulates demand for raw materials and of course, for building materials. And in fact, you know, talking about building materials, that's a key point which, you know, we're really seeing in the finance sector. If you look at this finance sector, it's actually the financial services sector, yes, but it's also real estate and business services. And of course, we're seeing very strong demand coming through in this property sector. And of course, that's also coming through. Interestingly, I'm sure you've seen the results um, from a number of companies or certainly had anecdotal conversations with them, Jeremy, about building supplies as well, you know, strong demand for concrete and other areas. This is all part of the stay-at-home, work-from-home shift in consumer patterns that we're seeing. I want to ask you one final question. The macro view is important and eloquently put, but uh, to listeners of this podcast who are consumers, what impact is all of this good news that you outlined to us going to have on the currency, on interest rates, for instance? Well, I suppose, Jim, you know, the currency is it's on its own course. It's less related to what's happening in South Africa and extremely strongly related to the fact that it is actually a commodity currency. We've heard that South Africa is an emerging market and, of course, therefore the rand is an emerging market currency. So, too, the rand is a commodity currency. And, of course, that is because we are one of the key commodity exporters in the world. So, as a consequence of that, the rand has benefited substantially because of the lift in commodity prices, but also, of course, well, because of the very, very sharp weakness in the US dollar. And of course, here, you know, we're talking about the phenomenal strength in the rand, but we forget that against the pound and against the euro, it's much less strong. It's you've seen much fewer gains. So, you know, weakness in the dollar. And of course, that is a reflection of the fact that safe haven flows have waned towards the United States. You know, we're seeing foreign, in, we're seeing foreign investment flows into U.S. Treasuries substantially weaker. And of course, you know, that is because the global environment is improving. There's a lot less risk in markets. But yes, of course, such a positive GDP outcome could also be positive for the RAND. Now, I think what's perhaps more key, Jeremy, is that we're seeing this strong growth. And of course, you know, the Reserve Bank, the last time it we saw at his MPC meeting, probably didn't put through quite as strong um, inflation figures as perhaps may come through this year. But be that as it may, we believe the Reserve Bank is likely, and this is probably the implication for consumers, to adopt a very similar approach to the Reserve Bank in the United States. And of course, there we are seeing them looking through inflation. In other words, not necessarily ignoring inflation, but just biding their time until this hump in inflation passes. Again, because of the base effects of a year ago, very low inflation last year, and many 
say, underestimated inflation because of the shifts in consumption patterns haven't been accounted for. And of course, obviously, a big jump up this year. We think the Reserve Bank will take the same approach, even with higher growth and higher inflation than perhaps it expected. We think they're going to continue to sit on a flat interest rates for the rest of this year. If we do see a hike next year, it'll be quite very, very modest. And of course, that in turn again is positive. Always sharp, succinct and to the point, Chief Economist Annabel Bishop. Thank you very much. Now it's time to tackle the burning question of the moment. And who better to pose that question than you, our loyal listeners? Is there something, well, anything within reason that you're desperate to know about? As far as the world of money is concerned, well, just go to investec.com forward slash now. That's investec.com forward slash now and share your problem, your issue, your question, your conundrum with us. We'll take the hottest questions each fortnight to the foremost experts that we can entice onto our podcast. And today I'm going to talk to Itumaleng Marafi, who is head of sales for lending at Investec for Business. Itu, a very warm welcome to you and tell us in terms that someone without a PhD in economics or finance can understand why so many of our listeners right now are fixated on inflation and why it matters to equity markets. You know, inflation is always an interesting one because firstly, investors typically worry about too little inflation as well as too much inflation. So it clearly is a right amount. But why why listeners should be concerned about it and why it matters to equity markets is, is there's a few reasons for it. The first one is inflation really determines what the real value of your earnings is, the real value of the returns that you get from the equity markets. So as inflation rises, the amount of return that you're getting when it's adjusted for inflation, i.e. when it's adjusted for the increase in general prices in the economy, is actually less money that you're taking home. So the general concern firstly is that in a high inflation environment, listed equities will have to actually perform that much more for you in real terms to get a better return. Now, the question becomes, how likely is it for companies to boost or to show more or higher profits in a high inflation environment? Because typically equity markets are forward looking and people are buying or liking equities that they believe will give them higher returns over time. And so in a high inflation environment, the difficulty for companies often is that high inflation typically leads to higher interest rates. And when you have higher interest rates, the cost of borrowing for companies typically is then higher, and that erodes the ability for them to return, to give better returns. And also in an, in an environment where there's higher interest rates, often bonds start looking quite attractive. And bonds are typically seen as having lower risk than equity markets. And so if people want to switch out of equities into bonds, that also puts pressure on the return on equity markets. But really the, 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 the crux of it is that often inflation erodes the real value of your returns. So in many ways, it's the linchpin to any investment strategy. What you're telling us is it's absolutely critical to have this uh, in, not, I was going to say, not your rear view mirror, but right in front of you all the time. 100%. Because, you know, if you looked at a return on an equity or on an investment without considering the inflation, you might actually find that in real terms, you're earning less and less over time um, as, as prices move up. So it is absolutely critical. And often you'll hear people talking about an inflation adjusted return. And that's when you look at what you've earned from your investment, taking into account the level of inflation in the economy at that point in time. So it is absolutely critical when comparing different investments as well to get a sense of how they look when adjusted for inflation. 
another episode of No Ordinary Wednesday, done and dusted. Please join us on the 23rd of June when we'll be mining for insights on the current commodity boom, what's causing it and why it's so important for South Africa's economic recovery. Also, I guess, how long is it likely to continue? Now it's time for you to subscribe to Investec Focus Radio if you haven't already. It's the one with the South African flag to make sure that you don't miss out on this and other future gems. Until then, goodbye from me, Jeremy Maggs, and the entire Focus Radio team. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.